Welcome to New Mexico in Focus. This is the podcast version of the show originating from New Mexico PBS. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer. We hope you have had a fruitful and happy week, and we uh, hope you have an equally enjoyable weekend. And we know that for many, the uh, wildfires and uh, it Thursday was an especially bad day again with the weather conditions and we are headed into a bit of a monsoon system that can be good or bad. Of course, we've been talking a lot about flooding dangers around that uh, through these burn scar areas. Just a tenuous time and as always, our thoughts go out to everybody who has suffered and lost during these fires. We're going to spend a lot of time on them in this episode once again this week, starting with Last weekend's visit from President Biden, he uh, looked over the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire area during his flight in on Air Force One. Didn't make a separate trip out for that or the Black Fire, but he visited and he did commit 100 percent to paying 100 percent of the costs of the destruction from those fires up there, which we now know were caused by prescribed burns that got out of control. And we know there are a lot of thoughts about that. What does that exactly mean? Gene Grant, our host, was on TJ Trout at 94 Rock this week, talking about one of the big issues we know has come up in terms of land grant and how folks and families who are part of those land grant communities may not be eligible for some of that federal assistance. So a lot of questions still to be answered there, as well as the lingering question about what to do with prescribed burns moving forward. So I want to hear what our line opinion panel has to say about the president's visit and his announcement. All of it. We are thrilled to have this week with us Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR. Also, Rebecca Latham, CEO of Girl Scouts of New Mexico and a former cabinet secretary under Governor Susana Martinez. Also, Julianne Grimm, editor and publisher of the Santa Fe Reporter. So just a great group on all of this. Let's get right to it. Here's host Gene Grant and the Line Opinion Panel. This week, I'm joined by three regulars. We have Tom Garrity from Garrity Group Public Relations. Julianne Grimm is also with us today. She's editor and publisher at the Santa Fe Reporter. And hello to Rebecca Latham, CEO at Girl Scouts of New Mexico. Thank you all for being here. Now, President Joe Biden met with the governor, legislators, and emergency operations workers on Saturday. He says the federal government would assume the full cost of the 320,000-acre Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire, started by prescribed burns, as you know. It's devastated a 500-square-mile chunk of northern New Mexico. And the president's pledge was the bare minimum in the eyes of the governor and a lot of New Mexicans. And Tom, let me start with you. How did you see this visit? And specifically, did the president set the right tone here with his visit? Oh, I think he set the tone that was needed. Okay. Most definitely. You know, Mm -hmm. there there was the promise of reimbursement uh, to the state of New Mexico. There was possible resolution for landowners who uh, who are kind of you know caught in that limbo of only having 75 percent of their uh, you know uh, their losses reimbursed but mm-hmm. more importantly I think what this did was is it helped to close a narrative uh, that we really needed to move on from this active fire season even though it's still very active uh, these two fires started by a prescribed burn and a pile burn uh, ended up uh, you know really capturing the attention and defining in some respects, uh, you know, the, the state of New Mexico for a time. 
a lot of people, uh, you know, are, are wondering, you know, you know, about travel, things mm -hmm. of that nature, when in actuality, it's just a very remote area and a lot of, uh, you know, great small towns uh, that were impacted. But I think it was the needed tone that the president set, uh, you know, to help kind of close this narrative that of responsibility that the federal government is going to take. Mm -hmm. You know, Julianne, the president said he saw the devastation from the air on the way in. Uh, adding that wildfires have damaged an astounding amount of land, saying, you know, you saw the quote, it looked like a moonscape. There's been some criticism that they would like to have seen the president on the ground actually taking a look. Does that make a difference to you or, or to folks you might have been talking to about this? Yes, I, I think that, you know, despite the tone or the optics mm -hmm. of this visit, this visit wasn't really for the people of New Mexico. Um, start off with the fact that the only media who were allowed in the room was the Albuquerque Journal. Mm -hmm. They were um, assigned to be the pool, and while they are cooperative and provide pool information, you know, organizations like the paper in Las Vegas, closest to the fire, um, yeah. the Santa Fe Reporter, the Rio Grande Sun, we weren't invited, we asked, we begged, we got mad, didn't do any good. I finally got an email from the White House this morning that said the reason for that was, oh, COVID. Uh, which I think is disingenuous considering that the president met with 60 people in a room in mm -hmm. Santa Fe. And I do think that the people who were affected by this fire would have much more appreciated seeing the president on the ground with a little soot on his shoes rather than looking out the window of Air Force One. Mm -hmm. He's not the only president to be criticized for showing up to a disaster and just looking out the window. Um, but, but I do think that the people of New Mexico would have appreciated all of this gesture um, and I think that it would have been subject to a little less criticism that it was a, a, intended as a campaign support for Michelle Lujan Grisham mm -hmm. if they had been more open um, to the media and to the people of the state. Good point, sir. I'd forgotten about the media access. That's a very good point, especially for the papers that are right on the doorstep of this or in the middle of it. There's something kind of bizarre about that, actually. Uh, Rebecca, I'm interested in your take on this as well. This, you know, would, could the president have just reached out just a little bit more, just a little bit closer. I understand he met with families behind the scenes, but what does that really do for anybody behind the scenes? I, I think, you know, to, um, to echo the earlier point, you know, like it's not, like you need to be able to smell it. You need to be able to like feel it and touch it and, yeah. and, and, and actually meet with those residents on that land that has been passed down generation to generation that is now decimated mm -hmm. because I can see something and say, wow, that is like, that's really important. I'm going to fight for it. But if I feel it, touch it, taste it, if I, you know, like, like he's going to fight that much harder to mm -hmm. get those families what they deserve. It's never going to be enough. No amount of money, even if they can get full congressional support to give 100% back to those families who, who are already facing such struggles. Mm -hmm. Like it's still never going to be enough to, because you can't bring those homes back. You can't bring those memories back. And, um, and, and I just think like it, it, it would have gone even that much farther mm -hmm. if he would have just made a pit stop that somewhere um, a little closer to the action. Rebecca, let me stay with you on this one. Uh, you know, I, I got to understand. I understand what the president's looking to do here and what he's looking to pay for, so to speak. But was he clear enough on this 100 percent thing? Because it sounds like he's going to pay wants to pay for all the machinations that go into fighting fires. And I'm not sure I really heard about making people whole at 100%. How did you, how did you hear that? 
So my my understanding is that the executive order that he signed mm-hmm. uh, uh, does give full authority 100% to reimburse the government costs, the right. cost of the firefighters, the cost of the traffic control to evacuate folks, like those those government costs. But I, but I don't think like FEMA can't do more for individuals without congressional action. So I think he did do um, the most that he is capable of doing, but does that really matter to New Mexicans? Mm -hmm. I I, I think the people who really need the help, it's, it's a, um, they're going to need more. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Tommy edged up on the, on the edge of it, you know, talking about the history of some of the families and all that kind of a thing, but perhaps there was another step there, but let me ask you this as well. We're all looking for ways to wrap our arms around the problem that has so many variables from climate change, issues with forest management, certainly. Did the president offer enough enough in terms of potential solutions to this issue? Uh, uh, No, is the short answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I didn't hear solutions. Uh, I did hear that the, you know, you know, what the president said as far as, you know, making the state whole and state and government whole. Uh, you know, I believe that there is a proposed legislation that would provide the same benefits to the individuals and communities uh, that were impacted, that were similar to the Cerro Grande fire that impacted Los Alamos and other communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, outside of that, you know, they're really and I don't think this necessarily was a time to get into policy discussions about, you know, the value or, you know, the, what happened uh, and stuff with regards to the prescribed burns and the pile burn. Uh, you know, so, you know, I don't think, I think this is more of a therapeutic visit as opposed to, you know, let's roll up our sleeves and, you know, get it done. And by the way, this is the first that I've actually heard about, you know, the, the restricted press access. And that's quite disappointing because yeah, yeah, huge missed opportunity by the Biden administration, Mm -hmm. uh, not to allow, you know, the, the Las Vegas optic, uh, and, you know, the other uh, media in the area, a chance to, including the Santa Fe reporter, uh, an opportunity to be in the room because, Mm -hmm. you know, that speaks volumes when a reporter or photographer is actually in the room with the president that's communicated. And uh, I'm disappointed and sorry to hear that that didn't happen. Right. You know, the video of it just didn't quite for me personally, didn't quite come off. The shot was too pulled back. It just a lot of it just didn't work in so many ways. Julianne, let's kind of circle back to something. And this is about FEMA and funding available for people whose homes have been lost or damaged. And you can apply on the FEMA website. But what I want to get at is the proposed legislation from Representative Teresa Ledger Fernandez that would offer full compensation for nearly all lost property and income linked to the wildfire. This, of course, as you mentioned earlier, is going to take some congressional help. In your mind, what would that look like to satisfy folks in in northern New Mexico? I mean, I I have to uh, agree that um, the legislation is going to come short. Mm-hmm. even if what they're talking about now actually gets passed by Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was reading a story that uh, Yasmin Khan put together for KUNM um, about folks who are part of the land grant communities, mm-hmm. right? So this is land that was um, given to people during the Spanish governance era in New Mexico, which um, some of our viewers from afar might not even know what we're talking about. But um, these are places where people have access to natural resources. They may have a residence or a family home that's not their primary residence. And so FEMA is bound by the federal law to only be able to compensate 
you know, that it has a lot of regulations, but that's one of them mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you're only going to get a, a comp, the highest level of compensation for something that's, you know, identified as your primary residence. And so these are multi-generational um, properties in some cases and sort of making that um, stipulation, it, it's going to mean that a lot of people are not sort of made whole in, in the parlance that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I think it's also really important to point out what the federal government is going to have to do right away. And um, the Army Corps of Engineers just yesterday announced this contract with um, an Idaho Falls construction company, which is going to try to build some structures to protect the Las Vegas, the Guyanus watershed from um, the flooding, which will come with monsoon season. Mm. Um, some of us have, you know, I, I personally got to see the Santa Clara flooding, the um, aftermath of the fire that really affected the Santa Clara forest lands. And I think that you're gonna, um, it's very likely the experts are saying we're gonna see similar or more detrimental flooding. And so protecting the watersheds now and using those federal contractors um, on a fast track to get that work done ahead of the rainy season is really um, important. And I was happy to see that that is happening. I'm glad you brought that up because that's the next step, obviously, in all of this and the flooding danger. Santa Clara went through their flooding, of course, back in, <laughs> you know, a decade ago after the Cerro Grande fire. So they're no stranger to that either. Thanks to the panel for the reaction to the president's visit. We'll be back here for another discussion in just about 15 minutes. Well, we take a closer look at some of the local races in last week's primary and the new lawsuit from the Secretary of State against Otero County officials. We have tried our best over the last couple of months to bring you context and information education around wildfires from prescribed burns to mapping wildfires to fire behavior. And one of the things we have come up empty time and time again on is really getting the Forest Service to talk to us about some of these difficult issues. Of course, we all recognize they have their hands full fighting this fire, but people have a ton of questions, and we've seen conspiracy theories even left and right in the wake of especially the Calf's Canyon Hermit's Peak fire, and it's been frustrating to us to say the least, and we know we are not alone. And in fact, we talked to two reporters this week, Patrick Lohman from Source New Mexico, who's been reporting on the fires, as well as uh, Adria Malcolm. She is a freelance photojournalist who's been doing great work, even though she has to kind of work around the periphery because the access is also limited. So wanted to talk about what the experience of covering the wildfires has been like, but also frustrations over transparency and access. And to do all that is our land executive producer, Laura Paskus, and just a great interview. We didn't have time to bring all of it to you on the show uh, this uh, Friday night on New Mexico PBS, but we're bringing it to you here. So just a great conversation. We'd love to hear what you think about some of these issues as well. So drop us a line on any of our social media channels, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. You can also leave an audio message for us here on the podcast. But here now, our land executive producer, Laura Paskus. You've both been covering the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire. Um, we know this fire is a monster for lots of different reasons. Um, Patrick, let's start with you. What stories can you just not shake off right now? Um, I think that our organization has uh, 
you know, really made an effort at meeting people in their communities. Um, we spent, you know, a lot of last week up near Mora and the area near there. Um, and I'm just thinking about um, this woman, Fiona Sinclair. She's uh, lost a lot of her livelihood um, and is already, you know, looking toward the next threat. She's kind of telling everybody who will listen about, you know, the threat to of a massive debris flow with the flood. Um, she feels, I, I don't know much uh, exactly about what she's saying, the particulars, but um, her energy is really amazing. She's, she's in these email threads with anybody, you know, p journalists, public officials, county commissioners from Mora and the state and federal government. Um, you know, she asked a question of Martin Heinrich, uh, according to her, um, and she's just sort of, uh, you know, the canary in the coal, mi coal mine out there. Um, so I just think there's a lot of uh, worry. Everyone's just kind of like looking out over the horizon at, at every cloud and worrying if that's the one that's going to bring the flood. Um, and so I guess that's just um, something I hadn't really anticipated going into this, that there would be this cascade of horrors, you know. Um, and I think we've been there talking to people um, and, and learning from them as they're just kind of like staring down uh, what's going to be a very long recovery for a bunch of different ways. Yeah, you guys have been doing great work. Thanks. I'm enjoying Sean Griswold's reporting yes. also. Um, Adria, you are an incredible visual storyteller. And I feel like when I look at the photos you take of people, I feel mm. like I've known them my whole life. Mm. Like you are, are so gifted as a photojournalist. Um, I'm curious, what are you learning from people and sort of their dealing with that? Not, not quite the aftermath of the fire, but the aftermath of the fire. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because, um, you know, I'm kind of afforded this space to really spend, I think, a little bit more time. Um, so I try not to always get in and out. And I, I tend to want to sit and talk with people for quite a while, um, just seeing what their experience has been. and. Um, what's been interesting to me is how many people just want to be heard. Um, and, you know, I'll go to like the old Memorial School um, evacuation center and people will just come up to you and want to tell you their story. Um, and that's really stuck with me a lot. Um, just being able to make that space and uh, put the cameras down and just listen for a while. Um, because I think it's really important for them to to be able to have that space to be heard and unfortunately I don't always have a space for that for that reporting as a photojournalist because I'm working with another reporter who's already you know found their sources and, and interviewees um, and so just handing those off to other people other reporters that I know so that they can um, try to have uh, them in a story and, and honor what they're sharing with me because I feel a big weight of not knowing what to do once these people have confided in me with their trauma and their experience. Yeah, I've seen some of your images where people are standing on their lands that have just been burned, um, destroyed. What's that like for you to, to do that, to share that moment with mm -hmm. people? Well, I think it's really important that people see the devastation. Um, it, and it's, you know, journalism can be extractive in a lot of ways. And particularly in times of crisis, 
um, and in the wake of the immediate trauma happening, when you're in those spaces with those people, they're reliving that trauma. There's literally sifting through remnants of their homes. Um, and so it can be really challenging for me to balance when I'm making an image and when I'm just being present and listening. Um, that's always been challenging for me um, yeah. because it can feel um, invasive sometimes too. And you have to respect that vulnerability that they're willing to give you um, that trust, but also doing your job as, as a reporter and making those images. Um, so it's, it's a balancing act of, source, of sorts. And then um, knowing that they're reliving trauma and so making room for those emotions that come up is really important. Mm -hmm. So speaking of doing your job as a reporter, um, we've been trying to line up interviews with the U.S. Forest Service since early April. Mm. Um, and I, I just want to clarify, this is different from the daily briefings where people, you know, are giving, the firefighters are giving these these briefings that are super helpful, um, but actually like trying to talk with Forest Service officials and ask them questions and have answers. And I'm curious what your experiences have been in terms of transparency from the Forest Service um, and accessibility to their experts. Um, they haven't been great. Uh, I understand fully that, especially with a forensic type investigation that might be required into the origins of the Hermit's Peak fire or the Calf Canyon fire, that's just going to take some time. Um, but, um, and I'm willing to wait for that. Uh, but in the meantime, it does seem very much that there are contemporaneous or even documents that they created prior to this that they could be uh, releasing uh, just to give us a sense of, you know, for the Hermit's Peak fire, fire in particular, what put the crew that day on that mountain. Um, and so that's what a lot of the reporting I've been doing has just been trying to kind of retrace some of those steps with the documents that are available. Luckily, you know, through the National Weather Service or through kind of historical um, uh, other agencies, they've kind of put done some of the legwork to give, give us some context. Um, but as you might have uh, read or seen, you know, a group of more residents have, have sued the federal government to um, quicken the release of the prescribed burn plan. Um, I did get one document, um, along with a couple other folks last week, um, that was created in 2018 that at least outlined some of the broader strategy around prescribed burns in that area. Um, but there was nothing that was produced in the lead up to that burn uh, that would give us any insight about why they determined that it was safe or who oversaw that or whether they had a technical or outside review, um, which was one of the things that was um, kind of it became a best practice after the Cerro Grande fire in 2000. Um, so I think that there's much more that they could be doing uh, because in the meantime, there are a ton of, uh, you know, just theories abounding about this cause. I mean, that's, uh, I'm sure that Adria has heard a ton of that stuff being out there too. Um, there's just conspiracies upon conspiracies out there. Um, and I think that's just because of the vacuum that the Forest Service is creating. Um, I, I'll tell you one thing we had to do. We, the Forest Service announced, or the incident management team announced that they would be doing daily briefings in Las Vegas at 9 a.m. So I drove from Albuquerque one morning just to ask one question, which was, do you think it's possible, and this was before we knew about the Calf Canyon, but do you think it's possible that the Hermit's Peak fire could have caused the Calf Canyon fire? Just because that was being speculated about, no one really knew about the science or whatever, it seemed like a long shot, but I had a chance to ask the one question, and 
and he answered no, and it's come out since then that, that in fact that probably wasn't the, that that wasn't the case. Um, and uh, shortly after that, they stopped doing those daily briefings. I don't know if that's related, um, but you know, and and I understand that those are supposed to be technical about fire behavior and expectations that day. Um, but I think it just kind of shows that um, it's very uh, that, that they are trying to limit information in such a way that is actually harmful. I think, and while people are actually reacting to the crisis itself. Yeah, it's it's been frustrating because, you know, we can be respectful of the investigation to be sure and understand that they're very busy. But I feel like there's so many big picture questions that people want answers to. Um, and there's so many experts on the staff who could answer those questions, but it appears as though there's a pretty strict firewall. Um, in terms of access or accessing the, the fire, um, you know, obviously you want to be safe and all of that, but how has that been in your experience? It's been pretty challenging um, and a little frustrating. Um, I'd never covered a fire before this. Um, and so kind of learning how to navigate um, evacuation zones and kind of work around that, you're kind of always on the periphery to tell the story and so I think you know we see this incredible imagery that comes from California where in 1986 um, it was passed um, through the legislature that individuals um, that are journalists can re-enter evacuation zones for coverage so that they aren't prohibited from from re-entering um, and so that's why we're able to have this these incredible visuals um, and so here, most states, um, it's all over the board in terms of access. And from speaking to former, um, from other photojournalists who have covered other fires in the past, um, they found ways around it, um, either through taking classes or just hanging around long enough where there are crews that they eventually let you on a truck and take you in. Um, I haven't been afforded that uh, luck just yet um, and so you will kind of meet a, a fish and wildlife um, law enforcement officer that's kind of um, guarding the evacuation zone and even though the smoke is from miles and miles away um, you still can't get any closer or when you ask for an escort I did get one escort um, in the evacuation zone from the Forest Service, it was me and other media mm -hmm. there, um, you still aren't um, getting really to fire lines. And I think it depends on the day for them as well, what the fire behavior is looking like so that you're not in danger, but it's still really prohibitive. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out if there's a way um, within the state that we could start to lobby for access for journalists. Um, in these evacuation zones. Oregon this year passed a law um, that requires um, journalists to be escorted, but they can't be um, given a hard no, basically. Mm. Um, so I think that's really important for people to be able to see um, what is happening from a journalist perspective. There's lots of photographs floating around on Facebook and online that are incredible photographs, but they're being made by, say, DOT workers or other people that are um, providing support um, for the fire. Um, 
but it's it's sad to me that a journalist isn't allowed um, behind those fire lines as well, um, so that people can see um, the devastation as it's as it's happening. I think those visuals can really impact people's perceptions, and when you see firsthand what's happening, I think that it um, it really influences people's perceptions. Um, and informs them. So I think that's something we have to work on. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Patrick, you've been writing a lot about FEMA and disaster aid. Um, what do you think people need to most understand about that process, what's happening, what happens next? Um, yeah, I think people should understand the limitations, especially those directly affected, but also uh, not take no for an answer. It sounds like that's there's been sort of this seemingly artificial barrier, barrier imposed for 30% of, of applicants, which is an initial denial based on insufficient records or any number of, of things. Um, but everybody I've talked to at FEMA just said, well, you know, they can appeal and they have 60 days to do that. Um, and it sounds like, at least on the phone, when I talk to FEMA, FEMA folks, they say, we're happy to work with people as much as is needed. Uh, this is an automated letter. Um, you know, I think that, that the existence of this automated denial process has come under question, and maybe because it does demoralize folks from applying. But I think that if, if there's anybody watching this who um, has gotten a denial from FEMA, I, I think that FEMA would like you to know that that's not really a denial, and you should just keep asking and visit the Disaster Recovery Center or call them up. Um, but I think, you know, as, uh, as we're all kind of waiting to see what will happen um, federally or with any of these pending lawsuits, you know, this is just not nearly enough money uh, to fully compensate people for, for their losses. Um, and it's going to take uh, an act of Congress and, um, and maybe more to, you know, meet, at least in terms of like financial compensation, uh, that which was provided in 2000 after the Cerro Grande fire. Um, and so I think that's something that we're trying to keep keep very close tabs on in real time um, any type of disparities in the way that the aid was administered between those two. So we're looking very closely retroactively at, you know, Cerro Grande and what happened then and also um, comparing that to what's happening now. So yeah. and it seems to me like the FEMA aid is is like individuals or individual families. What conversations do you see happening that have to do with how to heal the communities or kind of do that community work that will need to be done? Well, I did come across um, from 2000, there's a photo of uh, the FEMA administrator holding a sort of like Price is Right sized check um, giving to the county of Los, Los Alamos for $13 million at the time. Um, and that was specifically for rebuilding infrastructure and given you know, directly to a government. Um, I think that that was a product of the Congressional Act that was passed later. I haven't seen any, anything, at least in what's been administered so far, that seems to be, you know, more holistic to a government or, you know, a larger entity. Um, and so I think we're going to be paying close attention to that. But as far as I can tell, um, the individual relief that's been provided is, is exactly that. It's to families and individuals, small business association to provide loans often to families and individuals, um, and, and nothing, you know, has been uh, to my uh, I've, that I have seen has has gone you know farther than that. So. Yeah, what do you think, Adria? What do you think needs to happen in terms of healing for communities or northern New Mexico? Gosh, I don't know where to 
even start, really. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these people have been on their, a lot of them have been on their land for generations. Um, and their land burning isn't, it's not replaceable to them. And so for them to heal, it, um, it's going to take a lot of time, I think. I think it's a wound that won't heal for quite a while just because it, it impacts their family's legacy. Um, they have this connection to the land that I don't think many understand. Um, and the grief that's, that's impacting them, I think, is really immense. Mm -hmm. Plus these other barriers, perhaps, to, to assistance. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's just going to take a lot, of, a lot of time and hopefully the agencies that are in place um, do come through and are able to support. Um, but on a grief level, I couldn't imagine uh, how you even start to heal other than time and, and coming together as community for them. Um, and I think part of that healing is, is sharing their stories too and continuing and following up to see where they're at and, and see what happens to them. Well, thank you both so much for your work. I certainly understand the issues better thanks to both of you, so thank you. Thanks for thank having you. us. Yeah. And we know the impact both in terms of emotional toll, financial toll on people has been huge from these fires. But uh, also equally affected are the wildlife here in New Mexico from these wildfires. And it comes at a precarious time, especially for the Mexican gray wolf, who uh, are in denning season. And so makes it hard for them to just move around to avoid the dangers of the fires. And so we wanted to find out a little more about the processes, what they're doing to try to protect these animals. And uh, want to let you know. We've got a ton of great footage and images. If you love seeing wolf puppies, head to our website, NewMexicoInFocus.org, or our social media, again, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Search for NM in Focus or New Mexico in Focus to see all those delightfully adorable pictures. But we were lucky to be joined by somebody from New Mexico Game and Fish who filled us in all about the challenges around keeping these uh, the the wildlife safe from the wildfires again, really specifically in this case around the wolves. So here once again, our land executive producer, Laura Pascas. Hi Maggie. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I wanted to start right off the bat with the Black Fire, comparing maps of where the Black Fire has been burning and comparing maps of the wolf recovery area. It seems like there's some overlap there. And I was curious how the Black Fire is affecting or potentially affecting the wolf populations in New Mexico. We know the Black Fire has burned over at least three wolf dens and came pretty close to a fourth, and that's of known wolf dens. And during the high fire activity time, all of the adult wolves did leave the area. But since the fires moved through in the three packs that, that did burn over their dens, they're all back in the den areas, um, which indicates to us that they're still taking care of puppies. So we're optimistic that while, while the fire did burn through the areas that the, the packs are doing okay. So this is a, a denning time of year. Can you describe kind of what they're doing, what their activities are? 
Yeah, generally about April and May, wolf packs will dens. The females will have their pups and they'll stay in those denning areas through kind of June, maybe into early July and begin moving the pups around to what we call rendezvous sites. But generally from April through maybe July, midsummer, um, wolf packs are focused on tending to their dens and raising puppies. And how many puppies do they usually have in a den? Average litter size for Mexican wolves is four to six. Okay. Um, and I wanted to ask about the ladder ranch too, that captive facility. Um, did that have to be evacuated? The Black Fire moved on to the ladder ranch, um, I believe in early June, and we do have a pre-release facility there. Uh, it's five enclosures, and at the time it held eight Mexican wolves. And we worked with the Forest Service and we were able to go in and evacuate three of the wolves. Um, unfortunately, we were also evacuated during those capture efforts. and. A few days later, the Forest Service did allow us to go back in and get the remaining five. Mm -hmm. And we moved all of those wolves up to the Sevieta Wolf Management Facility on the Sevieta National Wildlife Refuge. So we were successful in moving the animals out of the area. The fire hasn't burned through the enclosures, but the smoke was really intense in the area and fire crews were really active in the area. So the wolves were pretty stressed out. So, mm -hmm. um, And the, the water source for those enclosures is the Animus Creek. So mm -hmm. that's a concern for us going into the summer as well. So it's, it's, it's better that the wolves aren't there anymore, even if it doesn't burn through. Yeah. So we're talking about wild wolves and captive wolves. Can you talk about the relationship between those two and, and kind of why we need both? We effectively have three different populations of Mexican wolves right now. One is in one is being established in the wild in Mexico, one has been established in the wild in the U.S., and one is the captive breeding program. And all Mexican wolves were eradicated from the wild by the late 70s, and we relied on the captive breeding program to save the Mexican wolf from extinction. And so both the U.S. wild population and the Mexico wild population um, were established using you know, releases from captivity. So the genetics are all the same, the populations are kind of managed as one, even though they exist as three separate populations, but they are intertwined, at least thus far, in the recovery efforts. Mm -hmm. So what kind of numbers are we looking at in the United States and then in Mexico? There are about 380 wolves in captivity, and that's distributed amongst uh, just over 60 facilities in the United States and Mexico. It's a binational breeding program. There's just under 200 wolves at our last count for the U.S. population, and about 40 to 50 animals in the wild in Mexico. And I know it's a long and complicated history, but can you give us kind of the little overview of the recovery effort here in the United States? Yeah, Mexican wolves were completely eradicated from the wild by the 1970s and um, captive breeding saved the wolf from extinction. And in the late 90s, we began releasing wolves into the wild in Arizona and New Mexico. And that population, it took a while to become established, but it since started growing pretty well. Uh, in the last six years, our wild population has doubled, actually. Um, so things are going really well in the United States uh, so far. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's fair to say that there have been over the years there have been sort of political challenges, there have been maybe, I don't know if scientific challenges is the right term, but can you kind of characterize how politics and um, sort of social understandings of wolves have affected this essentially like scientific program? 
Yeah, when you look at our population trend or the growth through the years, it really does look like there's sort of three different phases of reestablishment in the wild in the U.S. Um, in the early years, the population grows, and that's during a time where we were releasing a lot of wolves and not removing very many wolves. And then there's a period of time where the population oscillates between 40 and 60 animals and doesn't really seem to be growing much. And that reflects a period of time where we stopped releasing animals for the most part from the captive breeding program to the wild. And, but we also increased uh, removals quite a bit. We got really aggressive in how we were managing uh, wolves that depredated on livestock. And at the end of that kind of management regime, we shifted to where we um, were trying to proactively manage livestock depredations instead of reactively manage them. So we tried to get ahead of them and stop them from happening. And we stopped removing so many wolves at that time and our population has grown essentially ever since. Um, and only during the last few years have we started releasing wolves again from the captive breeding program to the wild. And we no longer need to release wolves to grow the population or establish it, not in the United States. The, the reason that we're releasing wolves now is purely to augment the genetics of the wild population. Mm -hmm. And cross-fostering is one of the things you do, is that right? What is cross-fostering? Fostering, yeah, cross-fostering is taking a five to 15 day old captive born puppy um, and moving it into a wild den that has similarly aged wild litters and allowing them to be raised in the wild by experienced wolves. Mm -hmm. So why is it even important for a species like the wolf to be recovered and reintroduced onto the landscape? Wolf recovery is interesting, right? Um, it's one, it's an endangered species, so we're mandated by the Endangered Species Act to attempt to recover the species in the wild. And I always find wolf recovery kind of especially interesting because Normally, when you look at the animals and plants and other critters that are on the endangered species list, many of them are difficult, maybe if not impossible, to recover due to things that are really hard to change, like habitat degradation or invasive species, things like that. Um, with wolves, in particular, um, it's less a biological issue and more a social issue. Biologically, wolves may be one of the easiest things to recover, right? They just need food and for enough people to tolerate them to where they can exist. So for wolf recovery, and specifically Mexican wolf recovery, um, the challenge I th challenges I think are more social than biological. Yeah, I'm curious, it seems like um, everybody has opinions or feelings about wolves. It's one of those species that feels like they're strong opinions and feelings on maybe both sides of the issue. I'm curious why you think that is. Yeah, wolves do elicit a strong emotional response in people. And I think the best thing for wolves in general would be to just be considered like any other animal on the landscape, um, you know, like a bear or a mountain lion. But that's just never been how we as humans see wolves. And I tend to think that it kind of lies in our own values. You know, when you look at, like for example, the West, um, some people view it as a, an area that we've conquered and we live in and work in and play on. Um, and some people view it as, you know, maybe the last bit of wildness or nature um, that we have and it needs to be, you know, protected or pristine. And people put the wolf in the middle of that kind of different set of values. Mm -hmm. And values are tough, right? We're not going to 
change anyone else's values, nor do I want someone to try to change mine. Um, but, you know, it's the area, kind of the gray area between our different sets of values that I think gives us the space to work in to try to achieve recovery programs like this. So the Gila National Forest is obviously an incredible place. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what you think. I'm going to start that question over. <laughs> Sorry. Mm -hmm. um, so the Gila National Forest is an incredible place. Wolves are a really special species. I'm curious, do you see a future where their populations don't have to be managed, but they're just a natural part of the landscape again? I do see a, a time and a place where Mexican wolves won't have to be managed so intensively. Our population is growing really well in the United States, and all indications are that we'll be successful in recovering this species. The biggest challenge we have right now is genetics, and we're doing you know what we can to try to give wolves the best chance they have um, in the, in that way. And you know as the population grows and as it expands, um, you know we'll be able to give more management over to the states and over to the stakeholders and things. And the best thing for wolves eventually is for recovery efforts to kind of back off and let let the species just be wild. Well, thanks, Maggie, for talking with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. That's going to do it for this episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. I am, again, your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer, and we appreciate you tuning in. i uh, got much more in store for you on the next episode, including the post-primary election dust-up in Otero County. Also, uh, Senator Heinrich and his involvement in apparently a bipartisan agreement over some gun control legislation on the federal level. Also, all about the ins and outs of managing our state's dams and reservoirs during a time when we know water is at a premium as the ongoing drought just continues to get worse and worse. So much more coming your way. We encourage you to tune in. That'll be out on Monday. But until then, thanks once again for listening. Meet up with us on social media and be sure to stay safe, stay healthy. Have a great weekend, everyone.